Welcome back to Cargumentative, a Times Live podcast on which we dissect all things automotive. I'm your host, Thomas Faulkner from the Sunday Times, and I sincerely hope that you're all staying safe in these testing times. Producer Paige and I are still broadcasting via our virtual studio, and in this episode, we're joined by a gentleman who's going to take us on a little trip back to the 1990s, a golden era of South African motorsport in which large crowds would assemble to watch the likes of Audi, Ford, Nissan, Opel, and BMW battle it out on circuits around the country. So without much further ado, I'd like to introduce homegrown racing hero and all-round awesome guy, Dion Jaber, to the show. Dion, thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom, thanks very much, man. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Not as much as we do. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's awesome to speak to you. Most people will remember your name from the 1990s when you raced in touring cars against the likes of Mike Briggs, Terry Moss, and Sean van der Linde. But how and when did you actually get into the racing game? Um, well, Thomas, I grew up at Killarney Racetrack. My father, um, uh, right through my whole life, really was involved with Killarney in some way or the other. He raced, and then he was also um, uh, the chairman of that club, which which was the most influential position there. So he kind of built. They didn't build Killarney, but he inherited from the from the first group. He inherited the circuit in about in nineteen sixty two or three. And since then, his whole life has been entwined with that right up to the day. He's 85 now. And um, um, so he was instrumental in pretty much building everything that was there. And obviously, I, just, I was just always there. So, so my, whole, my whole life uh, was just about cars and racing and so on. And we started karting um, in 1975. And, um, and then... Um, Except for a short interruption, I pretty much raced right through into the into the two thousands, um, and um, you know it's sometimes when you look back at a career, you forget the sort of chance moments when things took a, a right turn and things happened. You know that, that seemed to play. It, it seemed like a in, in reverse. It seems like it should have happened, but it might not have. You know, so so I had a I was very fortunate to have that super touring car career, but it was a very very short time, really a very short intense time. Um, uh, in, in even in the history of South African motorsport, it was very short. But we were very lucky to be in those cars and to have experienced that sort of works team environment, which had never happened really before in South Africa. Okay, well, look, I mean, you started out in go-karts and then you progressed to Formula Ford where you did pretty well. Uh, you won the national championship in 1989. Um, and so how did you progress from... from yeah, so, so what happened, well, we karted, uh, not on the level of, of, of what the children are doing now, but, um, but I won the South African karting championship. Um, and then when I finished my two-year conscript, I, I, Group N had just started. In fact, my father was Group N, which was actually very good because um, a lot of the manufacturers were giving out cars for people, and the cars were really basic, so they were they were quite they were quite cheap. I remember Andre van der Watt, who was the Volkswagen Motorsport manager for so long, uh, telling my father that it was pin money, uh, Group N. Um, you know, if you compared it to say the the Audis or even the rally programs they were running. So Group N in the late 80s, early 90s, um, enabled a lot of people to get onto a sort of a staircase of talent 
And then it, it sort of culminated in the touring cars that started in 1993. So there were a lot of drivers that, that I was just slightly ahead of, of people like uh, McCleary and Watson Smith. Um, but Michael Briggs's career, for instance, started because of um, the Group N racing. And he, he was able to get into Opel Motorsport before they even had touring cars. And then when they had touring cars, he was there. And the same for me. So I won the South African Formula 4 Championship. I'm going to be, I mean, I won every race that year in 1989 running my own car. And the next year, um, I drove a, um, a Group N BMW, a West Bank BMW, and a Formula GTI. So I had three race cars in 1990. Then I had two BMWs, a, a West Bank car and a, and a Group N car. And that was the year that BMWs got over the Opals because of all the massive amount of work that Tony Biana did on the car. So we started dominating the, the two-liter Opal. And in 1992, I won the West Bank Class B Championship. And that was the year that Tony got so ill. So our, our program in the group N didn't work so well. And 1993, we were in touring cars. So that's sort of the progress, you know, and, and there was a couple of lucky moves and, and things that happened, but that was what kind of what happened. And um, for the sake of our younger listeners, can you describe what racing was like back in those days and, and how it compares to South African motorsport today? Racing was, I don't know how to describe, describe it. It wasn't as as um, sanitized as now. Everybody was naughty. Um, it was it was dangerous. There was very little crowd control. Um, Armco railings. We went through a period of catch fences. I just got on the end of the catch fence period, which which were the sort of poles that they planted in the runoff area with with literally wires, and it was just. You know, it's so dangerous. And and the other thing is the motor cars were actually extremely fast. Um, so if I even tell you in 1992, Chris Aberdeen did a one minute 10 at Killarney in 1992. And the, 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 you know, most of the cars are still struggling to do, um, you know, what, one minute 15s or 16s at Killarney uh, all these years later. So the cars were extremely fast in a straight line. Where the improvements have happened has really been in cornering and, and so on, tires and so on. But, but the cars were just so fast in a straight line. And then they would have to go in the corner comparatively fairly slower. And the racetrack, racetracks were just beyond dangerous if you compared them to, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, our, our, Kilani and these circuits aren't, you know, safe as like a Grand Prix circuit. But I mean, if you people were just standing everywhere, um, that they, they could little little kids could hang their legs over the pit counter, and uh, photographers would be standing on the apex of the corner. It's just a it's just a very different era, um, um, and it sort of got sanitized into the nineties. And also, we had a, a lot of people preparing their own cars, the the motor cars. I, I drove any from Linda Skyline, which was a late. 80s car, absolutely shockingly unsafe um, in terms of how the, the the roll cage and that was made. So, so in the 90s, there was a very big step forward in the build quality of the cars, I think, because the the in the 70s were sort of you know almost amateur races. That's all what it was. You would you'd be petrified to get in it, really. You know. So I mean, that's a it's a main thing. It was just just a sort of adventure of it all. It seems a bit more you know bigger than now. You know. For sure. Um, and you mentioned the rivalry between Opel uh, and BMW. What is that like? I mean, in terms of um, spectator involvement and stuff like that, yes. I mean, was it, 
So, no. so there's, there's dictatorship. The spectators increased. Um, I think I think television and live television in particular uh, sort of drove an interest in the sport. But what also happened was we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the late 80s, early 90s, we still had like sanctions and and even our local rugby and and uh, the Curry Cup was very big deal. Whereas now, obviously, it's not. And um, we weren't exposed to overseas sports so much. So our local homegrown Euros were very um, were very big. And then the other thing is that those days there was something called a Molligation Special, which was a short run of vehicles that the manufacturer built for sale. Um, and these the racing cars were based on that. And I think the fact that somebody could buy a 3 to 5 IS or an Opel Superboss um, led to that sort of cult following at the racetrack so we had this uh, and it happened it had happened before obviously because the um the v8 sierra and the alpha and the um uh, what was it uh yeah there there were cars before uh in the late 80s that also had this sort of cult following um but i think this culminated along with television coverage and an improvement of that and just a little blip in the era and and um and motor racing was extremely good i think delta who sold opal at that time their whole marketing budget or whole marketing strategy revolved around group in racing so we they had uh four maybe six class a cars plus b cars plus c cars plus d cars and plus e cars available to everybody class e at 30 or 40 uh, opal cups racing so it was huge for delta um, um, the, the the marketing opportunity, and even for the other ones, obviously BMW and so on. Um, so, so I think really the homologation special. I was having this conversation with somebody and saying that that's the thing. And if you look at back at all the the cars that are collectible and interesting, they're all homologation specials. So you were obviously part of the BMW team back in back in the early nineties, and um, because of that, you got a chance to go and race overseas at Monza. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this? So, so I'd already raced overseas before I drove for the Linda uh, BMW team at a, a race in Bologna because I'd driven in the German touring car race uh, for them. And then um, what was interesting was in when I joined BMW, it was really Tony Viana's team. But BMW sort of made it a works team and forced to move to, to Midrand and he also had to relocate, uh, actually. And then Tony died, I think in 1993 from, from cancer. And we went to Monza to the world touring car championship at Monza, um, in, at the end of 1993 with basically, you know, a, a eight month old car. And so we thought and it was built in Germany and, you know, I strongly thought we had a, a very good car and so on. Of course, we, we ran into that sort of, realization when we got there, we took our mechanics and everything that, um, that their budgets obviously were just, you know, we used 36 Dunlop tires and, uh, Paul Radish won that year, uh, the championship and he had a, uh, the, the, yeah, and he had a hundred and he used 146, uh, Michelins. I remember the heap of tires at the Michelin thing was just like, enormous. And, um, I qualified, I think 45th on the grid. Um, and, um, I, I couldn't see the light. I had to look through all these cars and, um, 
I sort of moved off when everybody else did. Um, the BMWs went very quick that year. I think they were sort of eight or something like that, the best cars. And there was a one practice in the rain where, where I was 13th quickest. But but generally we just lacked we just lacked pace all weekend and um and I had a I had a, a off and I I spent the watching the second race sitting in the grandstand steaming from my race suit and that because it was quite cold with all the Italians watching the the race and um it was a very good experience but it was really really hard for me to deal with that um not doing so well there you know because. Uh, I, I really, you know, but, but looking back now, I think, it, you know, it was a, a great experience, a wonderful racetrack. I mean, Monza, we ran into the rev limit, uh, the top speed or the rev limit in Top Gear 263 times. So everywhere you went, it was just very fast. It was, it was so nice. Uh, in the beginning, I would, I would shift. I, I was in sixth gear that I would try and go to seventh gear. Yeah. So, so a very interesting racetrack because it's set in a park and, and the one, the, the, the one thing is called the Curva Grande is like these, these like, um, S's to slow the cars down. So you're going very fast and you go very slow. Then you go very fast and you go very slow. Um, because if you don't go slow, you're going to basically land up like outside the park in the street. Um, and so visualizing how those guys, you know, race there. I think the, one of the fastest Grand Prix still is from Monza, um, where they didn't have any of the chicanes. It was just must have been absolutely hair raising, uh, fast. You know, so. But yeah, it was a very very great experience, and um, it was quite funny because there was a shop in the middle of the track, and and um, it was raining, and that. So I went there to ask the lady that I that that sold race race clothing that that I wanted some overshoes for my boots. Uh, because of the wet. And she said to me, no, 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 no. You don't wear your race boots to walk around. You put on your, your, you know, your, your shoes. No racing driver would walk around with plastic things over his race shoes, you know. And that's always funny because it reminds me of prize giving where all the clubman drivers pitch up in their, in their, in their overall and stay in the overall all night, you know, where, where, um, where, where there's no chance you'd catch a, an Italian touring car driver going to the prize giving in his overall, he's definitely going to be wearing his team clothing, you know? So, so they're, they're very, very cool in Italy. They're just, they're just so cool. So I learned a little bit about being cool there as well while I was there. <laughs> it's a fantastic story. Uh, Dion, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll yeah. be back with you guys shortly. Time Select is your ticket to news without the noise, a daily digital edition of news, business, lifestyle, sport, and more. It's news you can trust anytime, anywhere. We know that's important now more than ever, and that's why we're offering a 60-day subscription to Time Select for just 60 rand. Go to select.timeslive.co.za forward slash buy to sign up for this great deal. Welcome back to Cargumentative. Um, we're chatting to Dion Joubert, South African racing legend. Um, Dion, I wanted to stick with, with BMW for a little bit longer. You got to drive one of the most iconic South African racing cars of the 90s, that BMW Enviro car, um, which had a really cool livery. What is that car like to drive? 
funny enough, the best car I think I drove ever was the German Touring Car M3. But they had about 330 horsepower and rev to almost 10 or whatever. So our touring cars were like a dumbed-down version of that. Um, but they also progressed from the early cars, the 93 cars, which would do something like a battle to get under 20, really, at Kilani, and then we ended up doing 17s or 16s. So the cars got better and better. They got better downforce packages. They went through a couple of wing stages. But the coolest thing about the car was really the gearbox. So the, the first cars we had had an h pattern gearbox, which is just like a normal gearbox. It's just that uh, dull greens, you didn't have to use the clutch, but you were always a little bit unsure Although the gear change was very fast and we could flat shift, we just sort of worried that you were going to put it in the wrong gear. And when we, get the, when we got the sequential shift gearbox, so by 95, the, the 95 car, we, we're running the sequential shift gearbox at a, a shift interrupt, you kept your foot flat. And you just had this most marvelous sort of experience of rah, 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 rah. you're just changing gear. And then you get to, like, you come around Sunset in, in fifth gear and you go down to the SS and you go, bah, bah, and it, and it just, you didn't count. You just sort of knew it was bah, bah, and then one gear up for the S's and one gear down and then, and then, and then get to the top of the West Bank. Bah, 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 bah. It didn't, it was weird because I often think that the many manufacturers are missing something with these uh, shifters on the, on the steering wheel. If they gave people a sequential shift gearbox, like a motorbike, they would just love driving the cars because it was just the most amazing experience. And we all got these, um, uh, our hands got these uh, sort of uh, what's what's English for yield, uh, you know, the skin came off your, your hand from the, the force of changing gear and our, and our shoes where you push the brake pedal, you had to push so hard that the, 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 the soles wore through. It's quite physical to drive. And uh, they also had uh, um, front and rear anti-robots that you could adjust in the car. And we also were at the very start of data logging. So we had a very, very advanced magnetic rally system. And at, at, uh, at the end, it started with elapsed times while you're qualifying. And so you had little places on the track where you, you could see how fast you were. And we had qualifying tires at one stage. Um, qualifying tires is just the business. Um, you know, you, 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 um, you, you go a second and a half faster uh, in qualifying. It's just, and you've only got one lap. And sometimes it didn't last the whole lap. It was really, really great. So that, that 95 year, uh, I think we reached the maybe 96, but 95. The, the trouble for not with 96 was Audi ruined it because they they bought those four wheel drive cars. And once once the once the governing body allows a four wheel drive car to be too fast, in other words, it, 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 you know we had we had sort of parity with the front and rear wheel drive cars. It's kind of easy to manage and stuff, but the four wheel drive cars. As soon as they, they, they enter, they're a bit slow. They allow them to, to – to, because they keep moaning, so they, their top speed's too slow and, and stuff, and they allow them, allow them. In. And as soon as they can qualify in amongst the 4 by 2 cars, that we're done. You can't, you can't race them for the whole race. So they dominated 96, so that spoiled it for me. But so 1995 was, was like kind of my best year. The car was just so brilliant, and the sequential gearbox and the – and the qualifying tires and the downforce package. And we kept getting upgrades. Every time we went to the track, we had something new. Um, I remember uh, track uh, tire testing where we spent the whole day just testing tires. We had Pirelli's, Michelin's, Dunlop's, and we just, they would put tires on the car and not tell me what it was. And I'd come back in and and have to download what I felt. It was marvelous. Um, Really, really that, 
maybe 94, 95 was just, oh, just so great. You know, it was like living the dream. I was being paid, drive racing cars, mechanics, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a part of me that thinks that perhaps the later touring car era was better in terms of the cars and so on, more affordable and so on. But they're sending stuff from, from Germany, Kipensky shocks. We'd get like this downforce package and it would be 150 grand lying on the floor for each car. And, and they would be like, oh, yeah, look, we got the new shocks at 30 grand in a corner or 50 grand in a corner. I mean, this was when an M3 cost 250,000 rand. Stuff was just being bolted onto these cars. It was insane. Um, um, and, and obviously the engine building program, we had an engine dyno um, and fuel, race fuels. They were just working on it. So, you know, we were... Oh, it just felt like we were making these jumps forward all the time. Um, it was really great. Living the dream in, indeed. Hey? Um, quite a fantastic time to be part of South African motorsport. Um, I've got a tough one for you. If you could pick yeah. one racing car uh, to park inside your garage um, of all the cars you've, you've, you've ever had. Yeah. Or never had. Well, of all the cars I've ever driven. You see, the thing is, I don't think I would choose a, a super touring car, although I might do because of the, you know, the history that I've got. It. And if I could have my 95 car back, uh, you know, new, I mean, do you know that BMW, I think I counted that bought 11 or 12 new cars into the country. We had new cars all the time. So, so in terms of a car that I drove and was made for me and, you know, that I'd probably would choose my 95 car with all its aero and everything in the Enviro car. And then um, second to that would probably be a West Bank V8 car because they're just so fast. Um, that, you know, I did a one minute 10 in one at Kilani and, um, and I also uh, had a brand new car built for me as well by, by, uh, by Derek from Black and Jimmy Price, uh, the pencil car. Um, the two liter Opel I drove with, with Mike Carroll, that was also, you know, and, and, and probably if you were to run something, that would be the cheapest car to sort of try and run, although none of them would ever be run at the level that a works team could, you know. And then there's the the, the BMW M3 German touring car that if you were to jump into something and just drive, that would be. But yeah, I think all in all, now that you've focused me, I think that um, that super touring car from 1995, I think I'd have that car. The car came second in the championship to Michael Briggs, that car. With the heap of tires and <laughs> wheels and rims and spare parts, you know? <laughs> of course. Of course, a whole lot of spare parts. Um, Dion, it's been, it's been fantastic chatting to you, and I've got so many other questions I want to ask, but, you know, we're unfortunately out of time. Um, mm. I'd love to have another um, interview with, with you, you know, down the line sometime but um yeah just uh, thanks for joining us on the show and thanks for you know sharing your memories and telling us a little bit about uh, the golden age of uh, south african motorsport back in the day yeah and probably never be repeated you know thomas you wonder even if formula one will have the budget say they had uh, next year you know <laughs> should be going into a brave new world and good luck to all the <laughs> listeners eh? Exactly. Exactly. It's going to be a, a whole new normal and uh, we don't know what that really entails, but yeah, it's going to be exciting and probably challenging times ahead, you know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. But 
But Jan, thanks so much for your time. Um, as I said, so so much more to talk about and chat about. But um, hopefully, we can do that again uh, sometime in in the future. Thanks, Thomas. Um, thanks very much. Goodbye, everybody. Cheers, Jan. Thanks a lot. Um, and that's it for this episode of Cogumentative. Um, good to have you guys back. Good to be back on the show and, and talking uh, in in our virtual realm. Uh, apologies if, if the audio quality wasn't great in this uh, particular show. It's just the way it goes with these gremlins. But uh, yeah, um, we'll be back next week for an, another episode of Cargumentative. And uh, until then, keep it safe, guys.